This episode of Fried Egg Stories is brought to you by the U.S. Open Victory Club. So to celebrate the upcoming U.S. Open week, the Victory Club has teamed up with the Fried Egg to give away four ticket packages. Each of these has two tickets for Saturday and Sunday at the 121st U.S. Open at Torrey Pines in 2021. The Victory Club is the official fan club for U.S. Open fans. Membership is free. Again, free. And you'll get access to... Exclusive U.S. Open content, virtual fan experiences, offers and discounts, and events at the championship and throughout the year. So to enter the sweepstakes, join the Victory Club at usopen.com slash victoryclub. Complete your profile and answer podcast to the question, how did you hear about the Victory Club? Again, that's usopen.com slash victoryclub. The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing. Playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. Not to be feared, though, it's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. Today, my guest will be Tommy Armour, the Silver Scot, one of the finest playing golf pros of all time. That's the voice of Jackie Robinson. Tommy Armour and I will begin our conversation right after this important message. It's about 1958-1959, a couple of years after Robinson retired from Major League Baseball. And he has a radio show called Jackie Robinson's Sports Shots. He interviewed famous sporting personalities, and that included Tommy Armour. Rosemary Maravetz is the one who told me about these clips. My name is Rosemary Maravetz. I am the curator of collections with the USGA Golf Museum. The audio from Jackie Robinson's Sports Shots is in the United States Golf Association's archives. My son is 12 years of age now, and he is beginning to take an interest in the game. Now... My question to you is, should I, as an average golfer, 80, high 70s, go out and tell my son how to hit the ball, or should he go to a pro for lessons to start out? You know, they, it was a very conversational kind of a, a segment, um, very reminiscent of podcasts. Um, the, the format was very accessible. Don't try it, Jack. It's not the deal. You're a terrific baseball player. Remember that. Uh-huh. Now you're in the golf game. Right. Uh, you know a little about golf? Mm-hmm. Just a little. You play well. But when you get there and try to teach children the simple things of golf, I don't know if you know them. When you, you're a kid, if you in many ways, the conversation between Robinson and Armour is unremarkable. Robinson asks about Armour's career, about swing technique, and about what makes a golf champion. Quite a question, Jack. But in a few unspoken ways, it is remarkable. For one thing, this is the late 50s, and here are two men, one of them black, the other white, speaking in the friendliest and most natural way. Um, And it was really fun to sort of hear this mutual admiration. And for another, you can just tell how much of a golf tragic Jackie Robinson really is. You didn't know that, did you? No, I Tough didn't. game, huh? Oh, yes, it you is. You've got time to give it up, Jack. <laughs> oh, I love it too much. It's a great game. But then you're telling me that... Um... 
It just sounds like two people that are interested in golf having a very normal conversation. They happen to be incredible athletes, but what's bringing them together is kind of a very simple concept. This is Fried Egg Stories. I'm Garrett Morrison. In this episode, we explore Jackie Robinson's life in golf. Now, you're probably familiar with how Robinson desegregated Major League Baseball, how in 1947, he became the first black man to play in the MLB in the 20th century, and how he confronted racism with strength and grace. In American culture, his story has taken on the weight of a heroic myth, a myth that happens to be true. What's less known is that the baseball diamond is not the only playing field where Jackie Robinson advocated for equality. He also did so on the golf course. And in golf, he saw a sport that was even more racially segregated than baseball, a sport where true integration seemed even more elusive. Now, I'll admit it. Before I started working on this episode, I didn't know that Jackie Robinson had such a passion for golf. It just doesn't tend to come up in the mainstream books and documentaries about him. And I think I have an idea why. You see, we're accustomed to thinking of Jackie Robinson as a triumphant figure, as we should. But the story of his efforts to change golf is complicated. In some ways, it's sad, even inconvenient. And those are the exact reasons I think it's important to tell this story today. Robinson grew up uh, in Pasadena, in Southern California, where golf was popular. There were there were a number of golf courses. This is Lane Demas. All right, try again, Garrett. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, got you. it. Perfect. Okay, excellent. He's a history professor at Central Michigan University. I'm the author of the book, Game of Privilege, an African-American history of golf. In researching his book, Lane came across a number of tidbits about Jackie Robinson's early experiences in golf. There's a story that he used to sneak onto the local private courses and find balls and sell golf balls back to the golfers. Later, around the time Robinson arrived at UCLA in the late 1930s, he took up the game properly. There's a story that he basically borrowed a friend's clubs and played for the first time on borrowed clubs and and broke 100, shot 99. That just doesn't seem fair, does it? And then it's clear that he got a chance to play more in college and eventually he's apparently shooting in the mid-80s, winning sort of Pacific Coast League golf tournaments. That's not too surprising in the sense of if anybody knows Jackie Robinson's college career, I mean, it's arguably the most well-rounded, incredible college athlete of all time. I mean, almost every sport he got involved in, he excelled at. Football, basketball, track. And arguably baseball was probably his worst sport in in college. But baseball turned out to be his future. In 1947, Robinson was called up to the Brooklyn Dodgers. And wearing number 42 on his back, he broke the MLB's 63-year color line. Meanwhile, his love for golf continued to grow. When he integrates Major League Baseball, he says that golf is his favorite hobby. He tells the press that he plays sometimes with other Brooklyn Dodgers. And in fact, that this was a nice way to sort of overcome sort of the tension amongst uh, white baseball players of having a black teammate and all these things that they apparently played some golf on the side. Robinson also plays with fellow African-American celebrities, including Joe Lewis, the famous boxer and former heavyweight champion of the world, and an avid golfer. Like Joe Lewis, 
Robinson takes an interest in the professional game, specifically in the efforts of black pro golfers to break their sports color line. Golfers like Bill Spiller. In 1952, the PGA of America bars Bill Spiller from the San Diego Open, and Robinson, at the height of his baseball career, goes to bat for him. Robinson's saying, you know, golf is the most racist of the sports that's left out there. We've got to get more black golfers into these events. And after he retires from the MLB in 1956, he goes on NBC's Meet the Press. And talks about golf again and says golf is the last sport, you know, every other sport black people have broken into, not golf. So golf is not only a passion for Jackie Robinson, but also a cause. Sometimes we don't. What's the first thing then that uh, a kid should know? Principal, take your boy, eh? Right. 12 years of age. Mm Mm-hmm. Stocky boy like you? Yes, he is. Well, you're not a boy no more. You're no, a big man. No, huh? no. <laughs> uh, get him a good set of clubs. Okay, let's go back a few steps here. Segregation in American golf was there from the beginning. After all, the game became popular in the U.S. in the 1890s, which historians now see as the start of what's called the Jim Crow era. The starting point that is commonly used for the Jim Crow era is the Supreme Court's ruling in the 1896 case of Plessy versus Ferguson. That's Marvin Dawkins, a professor of history at the University of Miami and the author of the book African American Golfers During the Jim Crow Era. And when Plessy versus Ferguson was passed, which essentially legalized segregation, That is often used as a marker for the rise of Jim Crowism. Jim Crow laws were essentially updated versions of the old slave codes. And the slave codes regulated every aspect of life for slaves, prevented them from marriage, prevented them from being taught, that is, literacy. Scratch out slaves, scribble in black people. And you had this new yet familiar system. It was really designed to make it clear that these people are not to be respected. These people are second class. These people are to be regulated. And there were laws that clearly provided advantages, privileges for whites at the expense of blacks. So how did this system manifest itself in the golf world? (laughs) Well, that's where you get me in trouble. Basically, Jim Crow structured golf from top to bottom. Courses were segregated, tournaments were segregated, and the various professions of golf firmly segregated. Clearly, the understanding when the PGA was founded in 1916 was that Black people were not welcome. It's sort of an unspoken racial barrier that's very common in society, but basically it's real, it's codified, but not in the writing. This unwritten prohibition was put to the test in 1928, when a black man applied for membership in the Professional Golf Association of America. The guy that tried to join, he was fair-skinned. He was someone who may have been able to pass for whites. His name was Dewey Brown. Dewey Brown just sent in his membership fees. They sent him a uh, membership back. Dewey Brown actually had a membership in the PGA, and someone (laughs) tipped the PGA office you know, this guy's black. The PGA revoked Dewey Brown's eligibility, and in 1934, it officially amended its constitution to limit membership to, quote, 
professional golfers of the Caucasian race. That was the actual written phrase, and it came to be known as the Caucasian-only clause. The Caucasian clause that the PGA has. The Professional Golf Association's Caucasian-only clause. What had already been there, the sort of racial, all-white notion of PGA players, is now codified in a written constitution of this organization that has huge implications for a range of individuals. Including African-American competitive golfers. Because increasingly by the 1930s, top professional events are requiring PGA membership for entry. And so you can get tournament organizers who consider themselves quite progressive on this, uh, you know, the Southern issue uh, of, of race and segregation, but their golf tournament is going to be a golf tournament for members of the PGA. And that means black people, black players are out. But African-Americans didn't withdraw from the game. Instead, they created what Marvin Dawkins calls parallel institutions. Blacks formed their own organization in 1926, and it was called the United Golfers Association. And the UGA was very, very significant in promoting the organization of Black golfers, primarily in the Northeast and the Midwest. UGA events attracted great players in the 1930s and 40s. Ted Rhodes, Howard Wheeler, and Bill Spiller were the Black Tour's answer to Gene Sarazen, Byron Nelson, and Sam Snead, in the same way that Oscar Charleston, Josh Gibson, and Satchel Paige were Negro League baseball's answer to Lou Gehrig, Ted Williams, and Bob Feller. Still, many UGA golfers yearned to compete against the best integrated fields, and so, after World War II, Black players began to challenge the Caucasian-only clause. In 1948, there was an effort led by Black golfers for them, sued the PGA. The PGA said through its leaders, look, 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 we will take up the Caucasian-only clause in our next meeting if you withdraw the suit. The suit was withdrawn. They did nothing. And there were some people who were involved in that who were enraged. They carried this anger into the 1950s, and marching right alongside them was Jackie Robinson. When Jackie Robinson retired in 1956, he became a columnist for the New York Post. And he wrote article after article after article targeting the PGA and its failure to permit Blacks to, to play. Robinson uses very strong language whenever he writes about golf. Robinson uses language like white supremacy, American apartheid is what he calls it. The public pressure is mounting, but the PGA remains stubborn on the Caucasian-only clause. Right up until the end, the national body of the PGA is voting overwhelmingly to keep it. And Robinson keeps firing back. By around 1960, Robinson's talking about golf segregation is segregation in New York, in New York City. There's PGA events. In San Diego, in Pebble Beach, in California, there's PGA events. So Robinson is very much hitting this sense of, America, if you support this, you support segregation in the whole country. The outrage builds, and eventually a key group of people gets involved. Lawyers. And then they get legal support from the Attorney General in California. Stanley Mosk was the Attorney General of the state of California. The PGA is threatened with legal action from these key states where there's a lot of important tournaments. 
And that's really what breaks the camel's back. The PGA of America is spooked. So in 1961, the year when Arnold Palmer wins six tournaments, the year when Jack Nicklaus turns pro, the PGA votes to remove the Caucasian-only clause from its constitution. It was a victory, but a late one and a sad one. The clause had lasted for 27 years. But obviously it was a step forward, and in part a testament to what Jackie Robinson could do. And it showed the influence of not just celebrity status, but the accomplishments and the regard in which Jackie Robinson was held. Tell me this about Tommy Armour. Uh, where did you begin your career? My golf career? Your golf career. You, that's right, you have varied interests as far as in your career, haven't you? Oh, yes, I've had some that uh, have to be expurgated before I told you all the <laughs> deal. Huh? Uh, well, I started playing golf like you did in baseball. But it's not like American golf instantly became a post-racial utopia in 1961. For one thing, black players had to meet a number of terms and conditions before becoming PGA members. Terms and conditions that, until that point, they had not been allowed to work toward. And so they all had to go back to square one. Even Charlie Sifford, a veteran pro with elite skills, didn't become a full PGA member until 1964. He was 42 years old. As Marvin Dawkins explained it to me, this is one way that institutional racism works. Anti-racism is not just an individual problem. So sometimes people think that we need to just focus on anti-racists, and that's important. But when we talk about institutional racism, we are talking about the normal operations of society. There's nothing wrong with how we do things and running our organizations to be profitable. Yet, what you're doing as a normal operation of how you structure what you do is exclusionary. In other words, after the PGA struck the Caucasian-only clause, its rules no longer mentioned race explicitly. But in the everyday implementation of those rules, things were still more difficult for black golfers than for white golfers. This was post-Jim Crow America, but it also wasn't. We can talk about Jim Crowism as being forever. <laughs> from the time that black people were here in 1619. So when people talk about the Jim Crow era, I make it clear that that's a historical period that was put in place, uh, but certainly uh, segregation and the oppression of black people has been continuous and pervasive. And as I think, Without doubt, the luckiest golfer ever lived. I don't know about being so well, lucky. A good player. Here, here, oh, I was a good player. Hey, you, you, you have to be a good player to win all the top prizes of PGA, the British Open, the U.S. Open, every major professional golf yeah. tournament Tommy Armour has won. But uh, I still was lucky. Still, At least I feel I was lucky. Well, don't you feel that it's... Let's catch back up with Jackie Robinson. 1956, he retires from baseball. I mean, he is arguably the most recognizable athlete in the world. He has a tremendous amount of sort of social and cultural capital. But Robinson takes what seems like a relatively unglamorous job. He goes to work as an executive for the coffee company Chock Full of Nuts. 
Robinson is leading this kind of Rockefeller Republican life, and he's commuting from Connecticut to New York City. He's serving on the board of on boards in corporate America, establishing banks in Harlem, and all of these things. And in many ways, he fits right in. You know, he he had this bent where he he was drawn to that world of you know I don't know what you call Wall Street finance, corporate America. His politics sort of leaned that way as well. So most of corporate America, most corporate boards, you know, they supported the Vietnam War and these anti-communism. Robinson loved that stuff. But on racial issues, Robinson remained progressive and outspoken. Always on the issue of segregation, racism, and discrimination, he was a powerful voice for change. It was a delicate balance between corporate America and the civil rights movement. But Jackie Robinson seemed capable of maintaining it. He was a very effective communicator in a range of social situations and public situations. He was very much adept in the world of whiteness. So in the mid-1960s, this is where Jackie Robinson is, commuting between Connecticut and New York, serving on corporate boards. He's living that sort of relatively Republican, kind of conservative, uh, capitalist, you know, dream, right? And part of that dream is golf. This is when golf is emerging as the favorite pastime of the business class. The suburbs of New York City have become crowded with country clubs, and Robinson starts to get invited to play at them, or at least some of them. Predominantly Jewish clubs would be the most likely clubs that might be open to having black visitors. There's a particular Jewish club where Robinson begins to play frequently as a guest. And the members grumble. A few members actually left the club over the fact that other members of the club were saying, this guy spends too much time here. Eventually, Robinson gets the message. He never becomes a member at any of these sort of all-white clubs that he visits in that period. So even though he was famous and largely beloved, his race was keeping him out of country clubs. Of course, he keeps playing golf. He would you know, wake up like anybody, any other normal schlub and go down at 4 a.m. to try to get a tea time at the municipal and get thrown together with people. So here it's just amazing to think of one of the most you know, popular athletes in the history of the world. But that's what he, that's what he needs to do to access golf in, in Connecticut. So Robinson starts writing editorials about this new, very specific form of racism he's encountering. He says, There's clubs that in the Northeast that pride themselves on being sort of progressive and open to Jewish members and all of these things. And yet, if I get invited there too many times, people start to talk about it. And even though I'm this famous guy, they don't want me at their club. By 1966, Jackie Robinson has another idea. He wants to establish a new country club, a truly race-blind country club. And he gets the support of a bunch of his friends, from celebrities to businessmen. Sort of high-profile movers and shakers. Including George C. Scott. George C. Scott, who is a great actor. Uh, played Patton, has a fantastic chin. And it's the Pheasant Valley Country Club. The Pheasant Valley Country Club. And it becomes a pretty big deal. In 1966-67, there was a lot going on in the world, <laughs> obviously. But the New York Amsterdam News, which is the leading black newspaper of New York, has like five or six headline front page, not sports pages, but front page stories on Pheasant Valley Country Club, Jackie Robinson's attempt to try and build this club. The main hurdle is finding a piece of land. And the Pheasant Valley Group has its eye on two potential properties, both in upstate New York, both already golf courses, 
and therefore already zoned as golf courses. But in both cases, local residents and local zoning boards moved to block the sale or moved to put in these new stringent reg- regulations. Some of the newspaper articles have this list of extreme regulations to sort of rescind what you're allowed to do on that property and basically make it inhospitable. Local folks who block this are sort of insistent that race has nothing to do with it. We don't want too many big city folks coming up here, right? We don't want, you know, too many people will come. And there's the noise factor. You know, noise and these things. And so they say, there'll be too much noise. You know, they would use all these other reasons to block this once they found out that it was a black, a group of black investors who were trying to purchase the property. It's really an example of de facto segregation, right? Where you, you could use all of these other ways to try and block integration without specifically talking about race. Robinson's group does try the legal route. The NAACP provides some support. So in both cases, they try to file suits with the New York Commission on Human Rights, the State Commission on Human Rights. But ultimately, in 1967, Robinson's push for a race-blind golf and country club just sort of peters out. Really what begins to fail is that they begin to lose support. Investors who had been on board just sort of back out and say, "Eh, we're no longer interested. And Robinson feels this as a kind of betrayal. So as he does, he writes an editorial where he says, Sort of bitterly that, you know, people were fine and supportive and putting down money when I'm trying to integrate Major League Baseball. Why didn't they stick with me in this case? You know, why didn't they stick stick this out, fight this fight? And he says, you know, they weren't ready for that is what he writes in the sense that, you know, everyone was ready, including Black Americans, were ready to support my fight in these other arenas. But this one people sort of abandoned me. And rarely does Robinson feel that way. If you look at his biography, if you look at all all of his op-eds and his writings, rarely does he sort of say that, that I really felt like my supporters actually didn't care enough or abandoned me. He says that about the Pheasant Valley project. So I think it speaks a lot to just how big that barrier was in the world of, of country club golf. For once, Jackie Robinson finds himself without a team. And maybe one reason for that is that advocating for racial equality in country club golf puts him in a sort of no-man's land. On the one hand, he's not going to get much support from the golf establishment. On the other, the civil rights movement has bigger fish to fry. Remember, this is the long, hot summer of 1967. People are fighting and dying, not only in Vietnam, but in the streets of American cities. And here's Jackie Robinson talking about golf? If he presses the issue too hard, he may seem out of touch, so he lets it go, and the story disappears from the press. But looking back, I think we can see that the Pheasant Valley Affair does represent part of what's going on in the mid to late 60s. By then, many of the official forms of segregation are gone, among them the color line in Major League Baseball and the Caucasian-only clause in professional golf. But what remains is profound, entrenched racial inequality which manifests itself in many ways, even in sidelong glances at New York country clubs. It's now this new phase of, are we accepted? Are we truly a part of the American community? Do we have full access? You know, are there still these arenas in which socially, culturally, or otherwise, even if you sort of change the legal language, 
people are still exercising daily sort of prejudice against the black community. How do we fight that? How do we keep America focused on that, that the change has to keep going? It's not enough to just stop now. That's what Robinson's doing with Pheasant Valley. All these things he stands for. Many, remember, many white Americans could look at that guy by the late 60s and say, well, we're all done. See, Jackie Robinson, the great hero. I love him. I'll put a poster of him on my wall. And I'm a white guy, and I'll tell my kids, see, the amazing things this nation accomplished. It's all done. The reality, <laughs> right, as Robinson shows, is that it is not done. The fight goes on, and it might even be a tougher fight. Five years later, Jackie Robinson dies. He's only 53. I have to wonder what he would make of golf today. As of 2010, black people made up about 13% of the U.S. population, but only about 5% of U.S. golfers. As of 2018, 91% of the PGA of America's membership was white. As of today, there are fewer African-American players on the PGA Tour than there were for much of the 1970s. Of course, there's no shortage of good intentions in golf. There are plenty of youth programs and task forces that focus on getting minorities involved, but their effectiveness is debatable. And so, almost 60 years after the end of the Caucasian-only clause, the integration of golf is still incomplete. That's what makes chat. Why is golf the thinking man's game? Well, it's a different game than any other. I'll tell you a funny thing about golf, Jack. I don't know if you ever realize it. To hit one shot, you got to move that club 22 feet. That is from the moment it's on the ground to the top of your backswing. When you hit right through it, it's 22 feet. Now to hit one good shot. And could you tell me, this is just a, a good detail because we're getting a little bit of the ambient noise around you. Uh, where are you right now? Oh, of course. I'm in the museum's collection storage area. So what you hear are probably a lot of other systems and our climate control uh, that unfortunately, or fortunately, I can't turn off. <laughs> Rosemary Maravetz at the USGA Museum is showing me what's left of Jackie Robinson's life in golf, his gear. So, um, and, you've got, and you've got the gloves on and everything. So you've, uh, I do. you're ready I do. to go. I'm ready to go. First, she points her laptop camera at the golf bag. It's um, a pretty, pretty basic sort of classic black leather golf bag. It has some gold piping to it. Wow. And it's in wonderful condition. So Yeah, I was going to say, that's like in, in flawless condition. Then the clubs. The clubs are also in beautiful condition. They're McGregor Turney. So that's uh, what we're seeing here is a persimmon driver. And, it's a three. Okay. So I'm definitely not an expert on this stuff. Yeah. McGregor Turney velocitized, it says. Um, and, and yeah, really is in, in kind of shining, perfect condition. It is. Um, and if you can see there, the grip has seen some, some experience there. It's been loved. I'm not sure if you caught that. Rosemary said the grip has seen some experience and has been loved. And that's the key detail for me. Oddly enough, I find myself so moved by that because it gives me this sudden sense of Jackie Robinson as a person. I'm accustomed to thinking of him as an icon, a legend, 
larger than life, but now I'm seeing him as a man who played enough golf to wear down his grips, but took impeccable care of his clubs, took pride in them. A man who really loved golf and maybe loved it more than it loved him. While he had opportunities to play with celebrity friends or other people that he befriended that were members at certain clubs, he himself couldn't pursue membership. He wouldn't be considered. It didn't really matter. And if it didn't matter for someone like Jackie Robinson, it certainly wasn't going to matter for the typical African-American golfer that was just trying to play a little golf, you know? And so how terrible that there was absolutely nothing that anyone could do to prove themselves worthy in certain cases. Um, so to me, that's just the saddest thing, the, the lost opportunities. His, his life in golf is not nearly as sort of triumphal as his life in baseball and anything else. And so it's always fascinating when people talk about the Jackie Robinson of golf. You always get the Charlie Silver, is he the Jackie Robinson of golf? Tiger Woods, when he wins the Masters in 1997, becomes the new Jackie Robinson of golf. Says Nike and everybody else, right? And seven years before that, when Augusta National invites Ron Townsend to be its first black member, New York Times says he's the Jackie Robinson of country club golf. What's so interesting about all this is that there is no Jackie Robinson of golf other than Jackie Robinson, right? He he is the Jackie Robinson of golf because his story is so unique and nuanced and has sort of the struggle, the fight, some victories, but also some defeats. That's the real story of golf integration. And you don't have to look at anyone else other than Robinson himself. Very true. Well, Tommy, I just want to say thank you ever so much. Jack, it's been a great pleasure to meet you. That just about does it for now, fans. See you soon. This was the ninth episode of Fried Egg Stories. It was produced and hosted by me, Garrett Morrison, with editing and engineering by Jay Virick, and extra assistance from Jay Fischel. Many thanks to our guests, Marvin Dawkins and Lane Demas, and of course to Rosemary Maravitz and the whole team at the USGA Museum. This episode was actually their idea. One more thing. If you stick around until after this music fades out, you'll hear about what Rosemary calls a history mystery, and maybe you'll be able to help her solve it. Thanks for listening. So what I wanted to show you, I'll bring these closer, are um, the head covers. So we have a one, two, three, and four wood. And if you can see that. So he had, um, or someone had on his behalf, embroidered a small two. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the, the small two on the four wood head cover is a nod to number 42. Um, But we still don't know the two and the three that the seemingly 22 and 32 are supposed to mean. So basically each head cover has the, the, the wood number one, two, three, and four. And then on the two, three, and four next to each number is a small two. 
Yes, that's been embroidered onto it as well. Um, and, you know, we've done some research on, you know, past uh, teams that he's played on in other sports even to see if maybe there were some numbers that matched up and it was, you know, a, a way of him paying tribute to these things. And we haven't been able to uh, make any kind of connections. So this is a little bit of a history mystery. And maybe some of your listeners will have some some suggestions or some information for us. Yeah, put it out to the hive mind. Exactly. 